Night Talk with Oliver Dixon. Good evening and welcome to the Monday edition of Night Talk. My name is Oliver Dixon. It's an absolute honor and pleasure being in your company. And remember that application, quote-unquote, that Khonsiense Ramakopa, Minister of Electricity, made to Cabinet about the extension of the life of certain power plants and power stations? Remember that, which has now been approved? Well, the Presidential Climate Commission, they've come out and criticized not just that particular action, but the Just Energy Energy Transition Plan altogether. We're going to get into the details of that critique with Dibak Patel, who is the Presidential Climate Commission Head of Climate Change and Innovation, in a very, very short while. Night Talk with Oliver Dixon. Dibak Patel is a commissioner for the President's Climate Commission. And he's the head of climate finance and innovation there within. He now joins us on the show to speak about their objection to the Just Energy Transition Plan, as well as the decision to expand, extend, my apologies, the lifetime and lifespan of some of our power plants that have now come to the end of life. The Minister of Electricity said it was critical to do so to be able to avoid load shedding, especially during the high demand months, which we're now going into in South Africa, being our winter months. Deepak, good evening. Thank you so much for your time. Welcome to Night Talk. Good evening, Oliver, and um, a very good evening to your night listeners. Yeah, before we get into the detail of it all, I, I just maybe want to get the rudimentary stuff out the way. From your conception, as well as that of the Commission, what is the just energy transition meant to achieve and by when? Thank you for that, Oliver. If I can start even one step earlier than that and say that the Presidential Climate Commission, appointed by the President and chaired by President Ramaphosa, is actually an independent advisory structure which consists in its commissioner base of all the stakeholder groups. So although we are quite strident and we make um, recommendations and give advice, usually based on stakeholder perspectives, science, as well as rational analysis, we are not an executing body. And so we do have some freedom and latitude to give advice that might sometimes be seen to be contrary to the actions of particular government departments or to particular ministers. Yeah. So the commission then sits, they consider a number of possibilities, they sketch out what the future may look like, they set priorities, uh, they look at the state's priorities, advise the state on what its climate and energy priorities should be, and those priorities are turned into goals attached to some sort of a timeline, we hope. Um, and hopefully the state, being cabinet and the various uh, ministries and, 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 and departments attached to it, look at that advice and they incorporate uh, that insofar as it, it pertains relevance to them. Uh, then... The president says, as the chairperson of the, the of the commission, hey, look, guys, we've got this proposal, the climate, uh, the just energy transition. Talk to me about where the start of that conversation was for the Presidential Climate Commission and the advice to which it gave. So let's um, put this in perspective. The first piece of advice we gave as a commission was in 2021 when we were faced with having to submit to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, um, normatively known as the UNFCCC, what we call our country's nationally determined contributions. Now, those NDCs contain a country's 
commitment to the global community of what its decarbonization journey would look like. And the Presidential Climate Commission in 2021 made recommendations to government about what we thought on the basis of analysis we could achieve from the point of view of decarbonization. The second um, recommendation we made was on the Just Transition Framework, which sketched out what the fundamental principles should be as we undertook this transition. Then, of course, we have the Just Energy Transition Partnership, which government entered into with a group of five donor countries from the global north. And those countries were the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, and the EU as a bloc. That JET P um, in this land of um, acronyms, <clears throat> excuse me, stands for the Just Energy Transition Partnership. In terms of that um, broad political agreement between the president representing South Africa and those five jurisdictions, there was a commitment to have a just energy transition investment plan. That just energy transition investment plan was negotiated between South Africa, represented by that at that time by the Presidential Climate Finance Task Team, not the PCC, um, and the International Partners Group. When the president... Sorry, just a quick, after have, just a quick interjection hmm. there. Does the Climate Finance Task Team still exist? Uh, because the last I heard of it, at least, was when David Minella stepped down as the head of it. That's right. Daniel Minnelli was the head of the Presidential Climate Finance Task Team. And once the broad contours of the deal were negotiated with the counterparties, being the International Partners Group, the presidency took it through cabinet and cabinet endorsed the JET investment plan. Once endorsed, that JET investment plan was presented to the Presidential Climate Commission with a request by the president for the PCC to do two things. One is broadly engage with stakeholders in South Africa to get stakeholder views on the JET IP. And two, considering that as well as our own logic, science and perspectives to then also make comments on the JET IP. We made those comments and presented the stakeholder report to the president last week, and we launched both those reports into the public domain this morning at a media launch. Right. So then what about the just energy transition, which is a, a multi-pronged um, uh, ministerial, um, you know, collaborative effort uh, that was put together? What about the plan does the commission find to be insufficient? So the commission in broad terms is very happy for the plan to be commenced with implementation. We have no time to waste. As you indicated earlier, we have an energy crisis right now. And I will speak to some of the perhaps slight differences of opinion with respect to how we overcome the current in emergency in electricity provision, but in a way which is longer term sustainable and meets our decarbonization objectives as well. Fundamentally, stakeholders that we engaged with, and these stakeholders were organized labor, all of the major trade union federations, um, organized um, business in the form of the Black Business Council, BUSA, as well as business leadership, um, youth groups that exist um, within the country, civil society and NGOs, 
local government represented by Salka, the faith community represented by most of the multi-denominational religious groupings in South Africa. And finally, we went to communities in those areas, Lepalala, Pumalanga, and the Northern Cape, which we believed would be most impacted by climate change. The, the, the issues on which all stakeholders agreed were as follows. Number one, there is an electricity crisis that we need to find solutions to. Number two, the issues in the Just Energy Transition Investment Plan did not make enough provision for what we call the justice components of the transition. And here, when we talk about justice, we largely are talking about creating some kind of security net for workers who would be either displaced or negatively impacted, ensuring that as the investments take place in the sectors enunciated in the JET IP, we need to ensure that those communities are assisted to find either alternative livelihoods or find, again, social security. Finally, as it relates to skills, we need to be prepared for the new green technology energy generation that is going to be part of our future and ensure that from now we make enough um, investments in skills development so that younger people and women in particular are beneficiaries through the jobs that will get created while jobs are at risk as we move away from coal. Um, the other area in which there was almost unanimous agreement was that the offer made by the five jurisdictions, the International Partners Group, was sorely lacking in the grant components and the deeply concessional finance offer. Is this the 8.3 billion rand transition fund? Um, correct, the $8.5 billion dollar, um, offer. I need to point out that that $8.5 billion, or at that time, 141 um, billion rand, which we now know given where the rand has moved in the last um, week or so, is probably much more in rand terms, yeah. um, is only one part of the estimated $98 billion that the JET IP feels is investment requirement for the just energy transition. So we need to also place the $8.5 billion offered by the international, let's just call them partners, um, in the context of what our needs are. And you'll see that it is barely, not even 10% um, of, of the need that we have, which in RAND terms has been estimated to be 1.5 trillion RAND to 2030 for three sectors largely. The yeah. bulk of it for, for the electricity system. Then there's electric vehicles and a potential development of green hydrogen as a competitive industrial capability for South Africa in the future. Yeah. So one of the critiques was that what the international partners put on the table was not sufficient, that more needs to be done there. But how does it pertain to the Just Energy Transition Plan that is on the table? So the Just Energy Transition Plan on the table essentially consists of the electricity system, which um, um, assumes that ESCOM will be restructured um, and that a national grid company would be created, which would then see both ESCOM being able to focus on efficiency, maintenance, and good management practice for its generation fleet, 
But that needs to be accompanied by a rollout of either private sector or public sector investments in renewable energy projects, which will be wind, solar and battery storage, and perhaps a bit of a need for gas as it relates to peaking. Now, at a technical level, peaking is required to stabilize the grid so that the grid doesn't collapse completely. Now, in this debate is obviously the question of how long coal-fired power stations in the ESCOM fleet should be allowed to run for. And although you indicated that the PCC had a difference of opinion on this matter, we are not far off. I think um, what we are saying is the Presidential Climate Commission is that short-term measures must not under undermine our medium and long-term objectives. That's point number one. Point number two, if it means that currently performing power stations can continue to produce electricity, but at a cost that doesn't require long-term investment in fundamentally and for many, many years, extending the life of coal-fired power stations, then there would be a possible um, middle ground where those performing stations could be decommissioned later than originally anticipated. Yeah. So the short-term measures you're speaking about, does it include, again, your, your critique is that the short-term measures must not uh, trump our long-term uh, long initiatives and plans. Does those short-term measures include the temporary extension of the lifespan of some of these power plants? So in our recommendations to the president, we do differentiate between major capital expenditure that seeks to have lots of funds pumped into an extension of life beyond just a few years, which we believe will be uneconomical and which we believe will create additional problems of that investment never being repaid, um, compared to those power stations which, if they are extended because they are reasonably well-performing as we speak now, extend their life beyond um, retirement by one or two or three years, it doesn't make a big dent to our decarbonization objectives and does carry then a cost-beneficial possibility that electricity can continue to be produced by those somewhat older power stations. However, if we take power stations that have come to the end of their natural economic life, in order to continue operating them, we believe that too much capital expenditure needs to be incurred to keep them going for a longer period. And but given, um, given the shape of our economy right now, the cost-benefit analysis would be in favor of doing exactly that, right? Because it would be cheaper to ex extend uh, the lifespan of Hendrina, for instance, as a power plant than, say, to uh, bring on board um, a thousand kilowatts of a thousand megawatts of renewable energy within the within the next three to four years. Um, Oliver, I think we need to do both. Our assessment, based on modeling and calculations, is that we need to be rolling out renewables every year at a faster pace than we have done as a country in the last eight years. So, if we had to speak in technical terms, in renewables, we need in order to meet the country's electricity needs into the future, we need to be rolling out somewhere between seven and a half and nine gigawatts of um, renewable energy per year. 
Now, I don't think that this is a binary choice that we have. We are saying that with good operating practice, good management, good maintenance, it is not a problem from a decarbonization point of view in the right places within the ESCOM power fleet to extend the life of some of the coal-fired power stations by a few years. You have, However, more, you have more data than I would, right? But uh, from predictions I've heard from some players in the industry and some analysts, that it would take us at least 10 years uh, to be able to bring on board five to 7,000 megawatts of renewable energy onto the grid, right? Five to 7,000 megawatts is not nearly enough to close off our demand deficit at the moment. And if we lose carbon uh, or coal power plants along the, that, that uh, decade-long journey, that uh, it would put more strain on our demand supply curve uh, when it comes to energy demand and supply. Uh, so we're not in a position where we can do both. We really still are in a position where it's one or the other, given that we have finite resources as well. Well, there are in, 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 in the current context, ESCOM supplies more than 90% of the country's electricity needs. And we are all in favor of improved management, improved maintenance, better what we call energy availability factors being achieved out of the existing coal fleet. If the debate is about whether we decelerate, whether we in fact shut down power stations at a slower rate than was originally committed to, as the Presidential Climate Commission on a cost benefit on a cost-benefit analysis and based on the dire need to be producing as much as possible now, we, as the Presidential Climate Commission, would not be opposed to an extension of life by a few years. Having said what, that... What's, what's the it, limit? Four years? Five years? Um, it's, it varies across the fleet. Um, if we take the entire fleet, um, different power stations for different sets of reasons um, perform suboptimally. We know that the generation fleet as a whole is performing way suboptimally compared to what we call its nameplate design output factor. Um, and we believe that we must, in fact, get the best output possible from the existing fleet by good practice and good maintenance. If it is a delay, and remember, these coal-fired power stations all have different ages, and so they come to the end of life over a period of time. If the power stations that were earmarked for decommissioning, say between 2026 and 2030, had to be extended so that they decommission at some rate that we agree makes economic and emergency electrical supply sense, that, um, that um, de phasing out or retirement of coal-fired power stations is delayed in a sequence by about two to three years. We do not think that that is hugely impacting on our decarbonization and therefore our environmental objectives. Yeah. What we also need to point out is that in large part, the renewable investment and projects that have been implemented have been done in terms of the renewable energy independent power purchaser power producer purchase program, which um, is largely private sector. One, is, one appreciates that the private sector invests on the basis of ESCOM's agreement to buy electricity from them in the old system. 
However, remember that last year, the president, in announcing a number of measures to accelerate the private sector's Lifted the investment. ceiling to 100 megawatts. Cor correct. And now beyond. So at the moment, there is not a ceiling. Um, and um, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. But there are something like 80 to 90 projects in the pipeline at various stages of either approval or development or financial close amounting to something like 7,000 megawatts. But remember, this embedded generation means that the private sector to the private sector are making independent bilateral arrangements to be able to secure energy supply to certain private sector entities. The other, other concession or allowance the president made, especially announced in his SONA address this year, was that municipalities can now start exploring ways in which, whether it's rooftop solar, whether it's battery storage, and potentially even big banks of wind and solar farms within the precinct of those municipalities, if the land exists, if the financial position is, is, makes it possible, and if the investors can be found, um, we, we, we believe that a, a, an opening up of the market in this respect can in fact accelerate the investment in yeah. and the creation of new renewable energy sources. There is a prevailing perception that the 8.5 the, the <laughs> billion dollar transition fund that's on the table was an ultimatum fund that came from the West uh, that told South Africa uh, to get this money, you have to immediately dump coal or you won't get this money and you'll be beholden to us or whatever the case may be. Similarly, there is a prevailing perception that climate activists in the country are of the sentiment that South Africa should drop coal effective immediate. Can you, as, as a member of the Presidential Climate Commission, sketch out what the future looks for us? And it will be a simple answer to this. What percentage of our energy will come from climate, from, from renewable energy, my apologies, in the next 10 years? Within the next 10 years, my estimate um, is that um, the balance of renewable to fossil fuel generated electricity should start approaching 20 to 25 percent. At the moment, South Africa's energy mix has renewables at about five or six percent. And will we reach parity in our lifetime? Um, <laughs> we, I think, you know, I, I don't want to make this um, a, a conversation around whether, in fact, we face a catastrophic climate future or not. But I think the scientific community of the world in the form of the IPCC has released reports that show that if we do not do something dramatic, not only the whole world, but in fact sub-Saharan Africa in a, in, an, in, 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 in a worse case scenario could see temperatures rising by between 4 and 6 degrees Celsius, could see massive periods of drought followed by massive periods of rainfall. And we've already seen some of that in our own country. And so when we talk about can we see that mix in our lifetime? Um, the world has um, reached consensus that as a collective, we need to be 
endeavoring to reach what we call net zero by 2050. If we do not, then the catastrophic impact of climate change, while we won't disappear as a species by 2050, um, the conditions under which we live across the globe and sub-Saharan Africa in particular will be immeasurably much more difficult than the poverty, the alienation, the joblessness that we see right now. Night Talk, giving you depth and texture to the conversations that matter. Monday to Thursdays, 10 p.m.